Welcome to this month's special series, Exploring Heart Health, on ReachMD XM157. Are men more likely than women to receive an implantable defibrillator? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Adrian Hernandez. Dr. Hernandez is a cardiologist at the Duke Clinical Research Institute and assistant professor of medicine at the Duke University School of Medicine. He is an author of two recent papers in JAMA, providing important information on who is and who is not receiving ICDs. Dr. Hernandez comes to us today from his office in Durham, North Carolina. Adrian, thanks for uh, being with us today. We appreciate your time. Well, it's great to be here. Maybe we could start with a little bit about your medical background and how you got interested in this idea for these papers. Sure. So I'm a cardiologist that specializes in heart failure care. Over the last five to seven years, we realized that defibrillators an important therapy that can impact the life expectancy of heart failure patients. Over a longer period of time, for the last 20 years, we've realized that uh, new therapies that come out or emerging therapies are frequently less used in patients that may be more vulnerable. These patients, such as women or minorities, uh, may get uh, less care than, say, white men for these emerging therapies. And you're referring to, like, the Institute of Medicine study early on? Uh, right. Uh, so in, in the mid-1990s, the Institute of Medicine commented on uh, new therapies are less likely to be used in women and minorities. So you were seeing this as there was some data about these uh, technologies being used and you wanted to see, I assume, especially since Medicare has changed its rules, if things had changed. Right. So in 2003, Medicare expanded their coverage for ICD therapy. And so with that, it broadens the reach uh, for ICD therapy and wanted to see if that uh, helped in terms of closing the gap for care of these patients. Before we talk about your specific research, could you give us a rough idea what Medicare guidelines are or other professional guidelines for the use of uh, ICDs? Yeah, so there are two categories for the use of ICD therapy. So the first is for patients who have so-called sudden death or a lethal arrhythmia, then it's indicated for what we call secondary prevention. That is stipulated by guidelines from the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology as well as other professional guidelines. The second category is for patients who are at risk for sudden death, and specifically uh, these are patients who have heart failure that's either from myocardial infarctions or heart attacks or either other reasons and have a low ejection fraction. Those guidelines have been around for a while, I take it? Regarding the secondary prevention, uh, guidelines have been around for uh, several years. In 2000. Five, the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology guidelines were updated to increase the level of recommendation to so-called class one evidence in 2005. So let's talk a little bit about your studies. I know you uh, were involved in both the studies that were in JAMA. Could you maybe just give us an overview of what you were looking for and maybe the difference between the two? Sure. One study used Medicare claims or bills uh, to look at uh, the use of ICD therapy for over several years across the U.S. And this showed that uh, there's a marked difference between men and women for getting ICDs. 
and this included patients who were getting it for primary prevention, so those patients who have heart failure, as well as those patients uh, for secondary prevention or for sudden death. Uh, the second study used the American Heart Association Get What They Guidelines uh, database of heart failure patients who are hospitalized. This provides a more detailed inspection of patients who are at risk for sudden death and looking at the use of ICDs in the, that group. How difficult was it to get the data or to manipulate the data? It sounds like a ton of uh, data to work with. How hard was that compared to maybe other research you've done? Or? Both data sets are complex. So if you imagine the, for the Medicare data, it's basically 5% sample of all patients who are, have Medicare. So that includes uh, hundreds of thousands of patients. For uh, Get What the Guidelines, uh, includes patients who are hospitalized in approximately 220 hospitals. And um, you start off with a patient population that's in the 60,000, 70,000 range, and then you're looking at uh, 13,000 patients in the, at the final cohort. And did that data, was it detailed enough to tell you, for example, in the first paper, did the data tell you the type of heart failure that, that was uh, present among the patients? No. So that's why we use a strategy of looking at two different data sets. Uh, the first with Medicare claims, it does not have as great detail for clinical characteristics, uh, whereas the second one does. And I guess uh, you came to the conclusion uh, that, I mean, you could easily determine who did and who did not receive the therapy, but I guess it sort of begs the question, is that bad or is that good? We know a certain group didn't receive the therapy. Uh, did they suffer because of that, do you think? Or could we tell that from these from Yeah, these I think studies? it's hard to tell right now. You know, that's a you know, a great question that comes up with anything that we study in that clinical trials that randomize patients truly test the efficacy of therapy. Longer-term studies can show where it's being used, and then studies potentially with more detail and longer follow-up can tell how effective we are in delivering therapy. In other words, if you don't get it, does it make a difference? So we're just beginning to work in that area. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Adrian Hernandez, and we're discussing whether men are more likely than women to receive implantable defibrillators. Adrian, in the course of doing your study, I assume that uh, you've come away with some thoughts about teaching and sharing this information with people that you come in contact with, residents, fellows, et cetera. Do you think this will change anything in the way you approach that or the way your students might approach these oh, issues? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a common theme regarding uh, women and heart disease that, one, it's, it is the most uh, common cause of death for women, and uh, two, is that uh, we do have a hard time in general in terms of picking up symptoms of heart disease diagnosing certain conditions, and also overlooking some therapies in women. And so this is yet another example for our students, health staff, and fellows to make sure to pay attention to women who may have heart disease. It occurs to me that I don't recall whether you described this in the paper or not, but back in, I guess it was around 2005, there was a recall in the U.S. market for some of these devices. Could you tell us a little bit about that and, and whether that, you think, had any issue here? Right. There have been, over the last uh, few years, with more 
monitoring of safety regarding these devices, problems have been identified. The first one that you speak of was a case where some defibrillators potentially could be inactivated inadvertently and not deliver therapy when they should. And so those devices were recalled. And basically, physicians chose to reimplant uh, devices in patients who were at high risk or had actually a need for the therapy. That, I'd say, does not have a major impact in terms of the differences that we see between men and women because that issue applies to both groups. I guess for physicians it wouldn't impact. How about the patients themselves? Do you think people were aware of that? I guess certainly in your paper, a part of the, that time frame included that right after 2005. Did patients react to that or have you been questioned? Certainly there was a lot of publicity in my personal practice. I um, had lots of patients who recommended getting ICD therapy and they were uh, afraid to. And what I think the misunderstanding was, it wasn't that it did harm, it just did not deliver the therapy that it needed to in a few cases. And the question is, you know, do women or men perceive that kind of publicity differently and then decide not to get a defibrillator or not? And that may be true. Uh, You know, it's not clear. We can't tell from this information. How was it atmosphere-wise in the hospitals when these recalls started happening? Did that put a damper on things for a while uh, with not physician policy per se, but hospital policy? Well, certainly it varied across the U.S. and in our own personal practice. It did cause a, I guess I set the tone of a awareness to ensure that we monitor the safety of these devices as they are implanted and also make sure we're up to date in terms of any changes um, with the technology over time. And one of the things that's interesting here is that unlike drugs, where anytime you change the formulation, you have to test it in very large patient populations, with devices, like any technology, there's incremental changes. And sometimes those incremental changes aren't specifically tested in large populations. How did you as a practicing cardiologist feel about the recall at the time? Did it shake the very foundations of your practice or did you think it was a blip and things were going to move on? Or Yeah, I, I, you know, I thought more of it was a, a blip and that it would be different if the issue was actually caused harm in patients that received a defibrillator. It, it simply was that in a few percent of patients that uh, should have had a shock, it didn't do it. And I don't think you necessarily need to throw away everything for that problem. Let me ask you this. Nowadays, when you get referrals from local physicians, from non-cardiologists, do you think they do an appropriate job of presenting options to patients or talking to them at all about these treatment possibilities, or should they? I think there's probably marked variation in terms of information that uh, patients receive from either non-cardiologists or cardiologists who don't work closely with either heart failure patients or EP. And we do see, you know, our personal practices that we see patients come in who have various opinions of these therapies, in part based on what has been in the news and also what's delivered by their physicians. You know, that, of course, varies greatly. Do you have the occasion to uh, talk to primary care docs much and pass along your thoughts or do education in that regard? Yeah, so I do a lot of that. Um, so one of the main goals now in heart failure is to try to get at problems uh, early in so-called 
those patients are at risk. So we spend a lot of time talking to primary care physicians about that. And we do talk about, they see lots of heart failure patients. And in fact, probably about 60% or 70% of heart failure patients are only taken care of by primary care physicians. And uh, we tell them about the benefits of defibrillators. But I think it is harder for them to perceive those benefits in their everyday practice. Well, hopefully um, our discussion today will help. And I want to say thanks to uh, Dr. Adrian Hernandez, who's been our guest. We've been talking about whether men are more likely than women to receive an implantable defibrillator. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. You've been listening to our special series, Exploring Heart Health. Join us all month for more here on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.